The Secret of Plato's Atlantis by Lord Arundel of Warder Read by Graham Dunlop Edited by Darren Grimes Preface The following pages were written for the month, but in the course of writing extended themselves beyond the limits of a magazine article, the third chapter more particularly becoming too elaborate in form for suitable publication in a periodical. I have therefore preferred to publish them separately, as however it would have involved too much trouble to have written and recast the articles, I have printed them in their original form as addressed to the readers of the month. The subject at least is a curious and interesting one, and Mr. Donnelly's work, which was the occasion of the articles being written, contains much curious speculation, and is written in a style calculated to give zest to the inquiry. It has had a wide circulation. I cannot expect the same circulation for this little volume, more especially as the theory it offers is not of the same romantic and popular character, but I hope it may contribute something towards the solution of an interesting and difficult question. Chapter 1 Plato's Atlantis, Mr. Donnelly's Theory A book which is now 1883 in its seventh edition, seems to claim some reply from the point of view of tradition. It is entitled Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, and in fact announces that the deluge in which we have hitherto believed and have called universal, at any rate to the extent of the destruction of all mankind, did not really occur, but that the subsidence of the island or continent of Atlantis at some indefinite period was attended by very similar circumstances and that it is the tradition of this catastrophe which has somehow spread through all countries, which has created the impression of a universal deluge. In other words, that there was a deluge, but a deluge as revealed according to Plato and not according to Moses. Note, this chapter was written previously to the controversy on the deluge in the pages of the tablet in the year 1884. I am not, however, aware that anything transpired in that controversy which would require me to retract or modify any statement in the present paper. If so, I shall be obliged to anyone who will put his finger on it. The evidence which Mr. Donnelly has accumulated, both to the Diluvian tradition and also as to the common origin, at any rate, of the civilized nations, on both sides of the Atlantic, is by no means inconsiderable. And it will be seen that, insofar as he fails to sustain his special theory of the submerged Atlantis, his convictions, facts, and testimonies must pass to the account or lapse to the inheritance of what I have regarded as the tradition of the human race. As it is always safer and fairer to present the theory of an author in his own words, so far as may be possible, I will give the principal heads under which Mr. Donnelly summarizes the purpose of his work. I shall have occasion at any rate indirectly to refer to the omitted headings in the course of this discussion. Number 1. That there once existed in the Atlantic Ocean, opposite the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea, a large island, which was the remnant of an Atlantic continent, and known to the ancient world as Atlantis. 2. That the description of this island given by Plato is not, as has long been supposed, fable, but veritable history. 3. That Atlantis was the region where man first rose from a state of barbarism to civilization. 4. 
that it became in the course of ages a populous and mighty nation, from whose overflowings the shores of the Gulf of Mexico, the Mississippi, the Amazon, the Pacific coast of South America, the west coast of Europe and Africa, the Baltic, the Black Sea, and the Caspian were populated by civilized nations. Five, that it was the true antediluvian world, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of the Hesperides, the Elysian Fields, the Garden of Alcinous, the Mesomphalos, the Olympos, the Asgard of the traditions of ancient nations representing a universal memory of a great land where early mankind dwelt for ages in peace and happiness. 12. That Atlantis perished in a terrible convulsion of nature in which the whole island sank into the ocean and nearly all its inhabitants. 13. That a few persons escaped in ships and on rafts and carried to the nations east and west the tidings of the appalling catastrophe which has survived to our own time in the flood and deluge legends of the different nations of the old and the new worlds. In this theory, there are two distinct propositions. One, that an island or continent of Atlantis existed and sank in the ocean. Two, and that this submersion was the origin of the various diluvian legends which are found in all parts of the world. The legend of Atlantis can hardly be asserted even by Mr. Donnelly to be the tradition of the human race, for he himself terms it a novel proposition. The fact that the story of Atlantis was for thousands of years regarded as a fable proves nothing. There is an unbelief which grows out of ignorance as well as a skepticism which is born of intelligence. For a thousand years it was believed that the legends of the buried cities of Pompeii and Herculeum were myths. There was a time when the expedition sent out by Necco to circumnavigate Africa was doubted because the explorers stated that after they had progressed a certain distance, the sun was north of them. This circumstance, which then aroused suspicion, now proves to us that the Egyptian navigators had really passed the equator and anticipated by 2100 years Vasquez da Gama in his discovery of the Cape of Good Hope. Page 3. On the other hand, although it does not appear that Mr. Donnelly himself believes in the inspiration of Genesis, Yet the fact that it has been so believed by many millions in many parts of the world during a long continuance of years must stand for something as against a theory. As it is my wish to confine my argument to the limits of historical tradition, I should have been willing to have accepted Mr. Donnelly's first proposition, viz. that Atlanta existed and subsided, at any rate pro-argumento, if historical investigation had not destroyed the prima facie evidence which seemed to compel or invite the inquiry. This, however, is a point which the reader must decide. Apart, however, from the historical evidence, I must remark that Mr. Donnelly's theory is opposed, from their several points of view, by Mr. Wallace, Mr. Darwin, and Professor Geeky. Vid Wallace's Island Life, Chapter 6, 11. Mr. Wallace's argument is not, it is true, addressed to the same set of facts, as are adduced in Mr. Donnelly's chapters 5 and 6, the testimony of the sea, the testimony of the flora and fauna. This, however, is a matter which Mr. Donnelly must settle with Mr. Wallace. The date of Mr. Donnelly's first edition is not stated. Mr. Donnelly's second proposition is, of course, dependent on the first, but I will continue the analysis of his evidence. 
If the evidence of Atlantis could have been considered probable, we might have believed it to have been the scene of the earthly paradise, the location and domicile of man in the antediluvian world, and the direction to which alike the sad reminiscences and bright hopes of mankind reverted. I will now proceed to discuss the principal evidence which Mr. Donnelly adduces. There is one testimony on page 95 which seems in some sort to favor the suggestion I have just made. The traditions of the early Christian ages touching the deluge pointed to the quarter of the world in which Atlantis was situated. This, however, is only based on the theory of the good monk Cosmos, who believed that the world was flat. There was a quaint old monk named Cosmos, Cosmas, who about a thousand years ago published a book, Topographia Christiana, accompanied by a map, an engraving of which is given, in which he gives his view of the world as it was then understood. It was a body surrounded by water and resting on nothing. It will be observed that while he locates paradise in the east, he places the scene of the deluge in the west, and he supposes that Noah came from the scene of the deluge to Europe. In Dr. Smith's Greek and Roman biography, it is, however, said on the contrary, the object of this treatise is to show, in opposition to the universal opinion of astronomers, that the earth is not spherical but an extended surface. Weapons of every kind are employed against the prevailing theory, etc. And although he quotes inter alia the authority of the fathers, it will hardly be disputed that the prevailing Christian opinion, commencing with Gen 11.2, and when they removed from the east, to the plain of Senar, has located the descent from the ark in the mountains of Armenia. We have already seen that Barossus relates how in this time portions of the ark were removed and used as amulets. Josephus says that remains of the ark were to be seen in his day upon Ararat. Nicholas of Damascus reports the same. St. Epiphanius writes, The wood of the ark of Noah is shown to this day in the Cardian cord country adv harris lib one legends of old testament characters s barring gould i-65 so much at any rate as to the prevailing opinion cosmos before he became a monk had been a great navigator but his explorations had been in the indian ocean mr donnelly is necessarily limited to the data found in the fragment of plato plato commences with this statement the tale, which was of great length, began as follows. I have before remarked, in speaking of the allotments of the gods, that they distributed the whole earth into portions differing in extent, and made themselves temples and sacrifices. And Poseidon, receiving for his lot the island of Atlantis, begat children by a mortal woman. He also begat and brought up five pairs of male children. The eldest, who was king, he named Atlas, and from him the whole island— and the ocean received the name of Atlantis. Page 18. Now as to Poseidon, I recommend Mr. Donnelly to a short but able treatise. Poseidon, a link between Semite, Hamite, and Arian. By R. Brown, Longmans, 1872. In which the warship is traced from its starting point in Chaldea through Phoenicia, Philistia, Libya, and Greece and Mr. Brown finally identifies him with the patriarch Noah as handed down in Libyan mythology, following in the lines of tradition. 
Note, Mr. Brown's argument would have been much enforced if he had noticed the following passage in the Journal of the Asiatic Society, 15, page 231, by Colonel Rawlinson, C.B. I read the two names. The cuneiform writing cannot be transferred to your columns. Doubtfully, as Sision and Nawa, Nosh, that the god in question represents the Greek Neptune, i.e., at any rate, almost certain. He was worshipped on the seashore. The ships of gold were dedicated to him. His ordinary title, and the latter word is explained in the vocabulary as, that is, Apsu, which may be called to Pu, or in Poseidon, as it is also joined with Nun, a fish. His other epithets are, Sumerat, king of the sea, and probably god of the ship or ark. Other titles I cannot explain, but they seem to be all connected with traditions of the biblical Noah. And looking to the diffusion of this worship of Poseidon in Africa, including Egypt, Carthage, Ethiopia, Mauritania, and throughout the Phoenician colonization, we seem to understand Plato's statement that Atlantis once had an extent greater than Libya and Asia. For many centuries, says Lenormand, the Pulaski of the archipelago, Greece and Italy, the Philistines of Crete, the Sicilians, the Sardinians, the Libyans, the Maxians of Africa, in spite of the distance of sea separating them, united in a close confederation, maintaining a constant intercourse, and thus explaining the Libyan element, hitherto inexplicable in the most ancient religious traditions of Greece, the worship of the Athenian Tritonus and of the Libyan Poseidon. Atlantis takes its name from Atlas, the king. We hear of Atlas first in Hesiod, as son of Japetus. His brother was Menosius, Nesius, Plato, Menu, Lenormand, and according to Apollodorus, his mother's name was Asia. In the Homeric poems, he knows all the depths of the sea. He bears the long columns which tear asunder or carry all around earth and heaven. In either case, the meaning of keeping asunder is implied. Atlas is also described as the leader of the Titans in their contest with Zeus. Others represent Atlas as a powerful king who possessed great knowledge of the course of the stars, Smith's Dictionary. In the Targums, Nimrod is thus made to address his subjects. Come, let us build a great city. In the midst of our city, let us build a high tower. Yea, let us go further. Let us prop up the heaven on all sides from the top of the tower, that it may not again fall and inundate us. Then let us climb up to heaven and break it up with axes. Barring Gould, Old Testament characters, I-166. We may be allowed to conjecture, then, that either Atlas is the tradition of Nimrod or Nimrod of Atlas. Will Mr. Donnelly maintain the latter in face of the historical evidence of Nimrod in the Bible and in the cuneiform tablets? Note. In the month, January 1884, I discussed the evidence as to the historical existence of Nimrod with references to the cuneiform tablets. It has struck me since that the direct evidence, so far as I know, has never been collated with the indirect evidence, as, for instance, as to the existence of Chus, the father of Nimrod. Now for this there is the testimony not only of Asia, but of Africa. As regards the latter, there is the testimony of Josephus, regarding the Gentile evidence of his day. 
and the independent recent evidence of the Egyptian monumenti. Josephus says, Ant 162, Some indeed of its names, descent of Ham, are utterly vanished. Yet, time has not hurt at all the name of Jews. For the Ethiopians, ever whom he reigned, are even at this day both by themselves and by all men in Asia called Jusites. The memory also of, etc., that this testimony of Josephus is corroborated by the most recent evidence will be apparent from the following references to Brush's Egypt, I-284. We have substituted for the Egyptian appellations Takut and Kush, the better-known names Nubia and Ethiopia, 276. The land of Kush, and upon the Assyrian conquest of Egypt, B.C. 1000, we find the name Nimrod appearing, 2206. For Takaloth, Yusukon, Namaroth represent in the Egyptian form writing the names Tiglath, Sargon, and Nimrod, so well known in Assyria. As regards Asia, the tradition has been fully recognized. Vid J of Asiatic Society, 515, pages 230-33. In Susiana, the chief seat of the Kush, we have the Scythic, Nithic, or Hamitic, page 232, inscriptions of Susa and Elimius, and the Scythic names of Kisia, Kosica, Shus, Afar, etc., not forgetting to mention the tradition of the Ethiopian Memnon and the Ethiopian Cepheus. Along the line to India, the Ethiopians of southern Persia were known to Homer, Herodotus, and Strabo. The Brani division of the Belus rejoined their Kushite brethren in Mekran by crossing from Arabia, and still speak a civic dialect, while the names of Kuch and Baluk, for Kus and Belus, remain to the present day. Colonel Rawlinson, C.B., now Sir Henry Rawlinson, K.C.B. Among other sons of Poseidon who bear resemblance to Atlas and Nimrod are Orion. Nimrod is called in the 70 the giant hunter. And the colossal youths Otos and Aphialtes, who at nine years old attempted to scale heaven by piling up mountains, which, says Homer, they would have accomplished had not Apollo slain them. Mr. Gladstone remarks that the efforts of the two youths recall the traditions of the Tower of Babel. Juvmun 251 Browns Poseidon 84 Mr. Donnelly's best point in his suggestion that Atlantis is identical with Aztlan in Central America. Upon that part of the African continent nearest to the side of Atlantis, we find a chain of mountains known from the most ancient times as the Atlas Mountains. Whence the name Atlas, if it be not from the name of the great king of Atlantis. Look at it. An Atlas mountain on the shore of Africa, an Atlan town on the shore of America, the Atlantis living along the northwest coast of Africa, an Aztec people from Aztlan in Central America, an ocean rolling between the two worlds called the Atlantic, a mythological deity called Atlas holding the world on his shoulders, and an immemorial tradition of an island of Atlantis. Can all these things be the result of accident? Page 172. We shall presently have to consider the question how far the immemorial tradition is the offspring of the invention of Plato. 
Before abandoning the present ground, let me remark that one form of the legend of Atlas makes him king of Mauritania, where are also located the mountains of Atlas and the Atlantis. Atlas was fabled to have been turned into a mountain by Perseus, who was refused hospitality by Atlas, because he had been informed by an oracle of Themis that he should be dethroned by one of the descendants of Jupiter. This reads very much like the tradition that the descendants of Japhet were to dwell in the tents of Canaan, and the belief of Atlas having been subdued by Perseus, the Grecian hero, the friend of Athene, may account for that part of the speech put into the mouths of the Egyptian priests by Plato. Many great and wonderful deeds are recorded of your state in our histories, but one of them exceeds all the rest in greatness and valor. For these histories tell of a mighty power which was aggressing wantonly against the whole of Europe and Asia, and to which your city put an end. This power came forth out of the Atlantic Ocean. Etc. However, I shall give later on an alternative suggestion. The inadvertent reader needs to be very much on his guard in reading Mr. Donnelly. Each subsequent chapter absolutely assumes the conclusions of the previous chapter. Thus, chapter 7... The Irish colonies from Atlantis, which naturally excites our interest, commences. We have seen that beyond question, Spain and France owed a great part of their population to Atlantis. But if we revert to Chapter 4, the Iberian colonies of Atlantis, with the exception of the statement which I shall presently discuss, that the Turdetani are said by Strabo to have writings 6,000 years old, there is nothing whatever tending to support his contention. There is indeed the assertion that the Basque language has analogies with the Algonquin and other American languages, and there is a similar argument in another very learned chapter in respect to the affinity between the Maya and the Phoenician. I remember reading in the month that the devil is said to have spent two years in the Basque country endeavoring to learn the language, but at the end of that time abandoned it as he had only mastered one word, which was written like Nebuchadnezzar and pronounced Senecherub, allowing, however, Mr. Donnelly to have seen farther into the millstone than anyone else. The correspondence of language would tend to prove the common origin of mankind, the original unity of tongue, and the migration from a common center in Mesopotamia, equally with immigration from Atlantis. Unless, indeed, the reader is prepared to believe that the Mayas of America are descended from Maya, the daughter of Atlas. The Iberians, having been thus demonstrated to be Atlanteans, it suffices to show in the chapter on Ireland that the early invasions came from Iberia. Spain in that day was the land of the Iberians, the Basques, that is to say, of the Atlanteans, page 405. Again, we read, page 286, We find the barbarians of the coast of the Mediterranean regarding the civilized people of Atlantis with awe and wonder. Their physical strength was extraordinary, the earth shaking sometimes under their tread. Whatever they did was done speedily. They moved through space almost without the loss of a moment of time. This probably alluded to the rapid motion of their sailing vessels. They were wise and communicated their wisdom to men. That is to say, they civilized the people they came in contact with. Other quotations follow, all with reference to Murray's mythology. We should naturally expect that these quotations from Murray had some reference to Atlantis. Not at all. Mr. Murray is only speaking of the Olympians. But Mr. Donnelly, having satisfied himself that Olympos is identical with Atlantis, 
He even contends that the letters of the words are interchangeable and the names identical. Henceforward, everything that is recorded of Olympos is convertibly to be spoken of Atlantis. From one point of view, Atlantis and Olympos, Asgard and Atlantis, are part of a common tradition, a question which I shall presently discuss. When, however, Mr. Donnelly recognizes resemblances, they must at once be regarded as conclusive. Example, that Olympos is a tradition of Atlantis. In short, Mr. Donnelly appears uniformly to argue according to the formula, Caesar and Pompey very much alike, especially Pompey. It seems unnecessary to say that Mr. Donnelly sees the name of Atlantis everywhere, except when he clutches at evidence in this way, he appears perfectly able to weigh facts and evidence. And it must be acknowledged that there is a seeming confirmation of his theory in the mythological and classical location of the Garden of the Hesperides in the islands of the West. I have already, page 2, quoted Mr. Donnelly on this head. His confirmation of the theory, however, again disappears when we remember that the Garden of the Hesperides was only one of the reminiscences of Eden. It is true that, from his point of view, Eden is only a reminiscence of Atlantis. But apart from the argument which I shall proceed to put, Eden in the East having been the prominent belief of mankind, the onus probandi lies on his side of showing that all those traditions, Meru, Olympos, Elysium, Asgard, Midgard, centered in Atlantis. So far from this being the case, the salient features of the tradition which are common to the other legends are barely discernible in the description of Plato. Example, instead of a garden, we have only a fertile plain. With the exception of the Garden of the Hesperides, all these other traditions place the Garden of Paradise in the east, or the supposed center of the world. Note, Moreover, the Bible and the Babylonian tradition place paradise and the father of countries in the east. Vid, M. Lenormand, M. Oppert, and Labi Vigorou. In all these legends, we shall agree so far, we find the embodiment of early tradition in a garden or a plain, a palace on or in connection with a mountain. There is, however, one feature common to them all which, at first sight, favors Mr. Donnelly's theory and which perhaps has confirmed him in it. They are all surrounded by water. This, he naturally contends, means the island of Atlantis. But when we consider that whenever the ancients represented the world, they represented it surrounded by water. It is so represented in Homer and in the map which Mr. Donnelly gives the old monk Cosmos, that one form the legend takes is that of Midgard, the middle of the earth, the Mesomphalos, which was equally distant on all sides from the sea. And when we consider that according to the experience of mankind in their explorations in three directions, in the Atlantic and round the African coast to the Chinese seas, all was water, the north being sealed to them as it is to us. I think Mr. Donnelly has only to enlarge his view, and he will fall back into the tradition of mankind. At page 326, Mr. Donnelly says... Thus the nations on the west of the Atlantic looked to the east for their place of origin, while on the east of the Atlantic they looked to the west. Thus all the lines of tradition converge upon Atlantis. But precisely the same may be said if we start mankind from the plain of Senar. And if we start mankind from the plain of Senar on the lines of the biblical narrative, is it unnatural to expect that they should embody their traditions of paradise, the Tower of Babel, and the Deluge, and the Conception? 
grotesque, no doubt, of a garden on a mountain surrounded by water? In all the legends of India, the original seat of mankind is placed on Mount Meru, the residence of the gods, a column uniting heaven to earth. Lenormont, Frag Cosmog, de Beros, page 300. In the Scandinavian legend, the centrical fortress which the gods constructed from the eyebrows of Mien, and which towered from the midst of the earth equally distant on all sides from the sea, is certainly the Meru of the Hindus and Indocidia. It was the peculiar residence of the hero god immediately after the deluge, and it is at once described with all the characteristics of a paradise, and is represented as a fortress which might secure the deities against any further attacks of the giants. S. Faber, OPI, I-220 According to this creed, the mythology of the Eddas, Aesir and Odin had their abode in Asgard, a lofty hill in the center of the habitable earth in the midst of Midgard. That Middle Earth, which we hear of in early English poetry, the abode of gods and men. Round that earth, which was fenced in against the attacks of ancient and inveterate foes by a natural fortification of hills, flowed the great sea, and a ring, and beyond that sea was Utgard, the outlying world, the abode of frost and giants and monsters, those old natural powers who had been dispossessed by Odin and the Aesir when the new order of the universe arose. G. Webb, Descent, Tales from the Norse. Lenormont, 301-2, says that the Iranian tradition corresponds. Heriopolis, Delos, and Ekbatana were constructed with reference to this tradition, and I consider that I have proved that the ancient state of Meru and the island of Mero near Mount Gibani in the country of Sudan, vid scientific value of tradition, pages 161 to 179, was organized with reference to this tradition. The tradition of paradise in connection with the deluge and the Tower of Babel is also seen in the Hanging Gardens the paradisiacal mountain, the pyramids and stages, and the tower of Borsippa near Babylon, vide Lenormand, id 318. There is special mention, page 320, of a bas-relief in the palace of Assur-Banapal, of which a fragment has been published in Rawlinson's Five Great Monarchies, I-388, where a royal paradise adjoins a palace planted with large trees placed on the summit of an eminence and watered by a single stream of water, which divided itself into several channels on the side of the mountain, like the stream of paradise, the spring of Arvanda, or Ardava Kura of the Iranian Hara Berzuiti, and the Ganja of the Indian Meru, Lenormand 321. Compare this with Plato's description of Atlantis. On the side towards the sea, and in the center of the whole island, there was a plain which is said to have been the fairest of all plains, and very fertile. Near the plain again, and also in the center of the island, at a distance of about fifty stadia, there was a mountain not very high on any side. In this mountain there dwelt one of the earth-born primeval men of that country, whose name was Ivanor, and Lucipi, and they had an only daughter named Chito. Poseidon fell in love with her, and breaking the ground enclosed the hill in which she dwelt all round, making alternated zones of sea and land, larger and smaller, encircling one another. There were two of land and three of water, which he turned as with a lathe out of the center of the island, 
equidistant every way, so that no man could get to the island, for ship's voyages were not yet heard of. He himself, as he was a god, found no difficulty in making special arrangements for the center island, bringing two streams of water under the earth, which he caused to ascend as springs, one as warm water and the other of cold, and making every variety of food to spring up abundantly in the earth. He also begat and brought up five pairs of male children, dividing the island of Atlantis into ten portions. Donnelly's Atlantis, page 13. I've given these extracts in juxtaposition at some length, as it will thus be possible to decide whether those including Atlantis are all common traditions of the one historic narrative which embraces and completes them all, or whether they are all developed out of these slender reminiscences recorded of Atlantis. I assume that Mr. Donnelly will entrench himself in the position, as it seems to me the only position that remains to him, viz. that... Plato states that the Egyptians told Solon that the destruction of Atlantis occurred 9,000 years before that date, to wit, about 9,600 years before the Christian era. This looks like an extraordinarily long period of time, but it must be remembered that geologists claim that the remains of man found in the caves of Europe date back 500,000 years. Page 29. So tremendous a position can only be taken by a process of sapping and mining, as I confine myself to the historical facts and do not profess to have at command such heavy artillery as will discharge 500,000 years in a single explosion. Considering that all chronologies and histories upon analysis seem to terminate about 3,000 B.C., or if they include the antediluvian world, to about 6,000 B.C., that if the migration of the nations is retraced, they are found to converge upon the central district lying between Persia and the Mediterranean, Armenia, to Ethiopia, that according to Mr. Proctor, the constellations known by similar names to variously dispersed nations can astronomically be shown to have been so named within the latitudes indicated above and about the year 2200 BC. There is a background of probability for traditions tracing back to that period. And as against Mr. Donnelly, the argument might almost be stated mathematically. Note, for one instance, take what Colonel Rawlinson, sup, page 232, says of the migration of the Siths, or Hamites. They must have spread themselves at the same time over Syria and Asia Minor, sending out colonies from one country to Mauritania, Sicily, and Iberia, from the other it is well known to ethnographers that the passage of this Siths is to be traced along these lines, either by direct historical tradition or by the cognate dialects spoken of their descendants at the present day. And if we were to be thus guided by this mere intersection of linguistic paths and independently of all reference to the scriptural record, we should still be led to fix on the plains of Shinar as the focus from which the various lines had radiated. Given the amount of skepticism which will attach to the transmission of traditions of such caliber as the Garden of Paradise, the Universal Deluge, the dispersion during 3,000 years, how much will exist as to the preservation of the slight reminiscences of Atlantis, as above during 9,000 years? As regards the reminiscences of Atlantis, either the tradition of this place, mountain, and canals was preserved before or after the subsidence of Atlantis. If before, how explain the fact that this tradition so curiously runs into the lines of the Diluvian tradition? 
They must, then, have been traditional of an event which happened ex hypothesi at a later date. Or if after, how explain that what would then be the direct tradition of the deluge, or submersion, was thus transmitted only in an indirect, disguised, and legendary form, and on the other hand, that an apparently direct record of it, as in Genesis, should in fact be only the tradition at second hand of a tradition in indirect form. The biblical record, the cuneiform narrative, the Indian legend, etc., all profess to give the tradition indirect form. How is it that they all tell of a universal deluge, in which one family, sometimes one man, survived, and that in all the prominent cause of the destruction was unintermittent and protracted rain? In the case of Atlantis, the cause was subsidence, or else the geological argument must be abandoned. Moreover, if the intelligence of the calamity, which was ultimately to take the form of the Diluvian tradition, was to be extended piecemeal over the whole human race, even in 9,000 years, it could scarcely have been through one man or one family, but through many. And it would seem none of the records or traditions tell of the event in the manner it is supposed to have happened either according to the geological evidence or according to the revelation of Plato. In tradition and elsewhere, I have endeavored to collate, though very imperfectly, the various traditions of the patriarch Noah in Kronos, Poseidon, Saturn, Hoa, etc. Kronos, no doubt, was the father of Poseidon, and so on. Yet fundamentally, whilst decreting other traditions as of Shem, Cham, and Japhet, they all describe a primeval legislator who inaugurated or appeared in connection with a new order of things. All that came out or had relations with, without being identified with, the ocean. And although all are associated with the recollection of a primeval paradise, a golden age, a period of happiness and prosperity which was lost to mankind, they are almost all associated in some way with a catastrophe or calamity. They all plant the vine or the olive, so that it has been said that all nations have given the honor of the discovery of agriculture to their first sovereigns. Now it happens, for the purpose of this argument, to be convenient to Mr. Donnelly to recognize this in part and apply it in this way. According to the requirements of his theory, the intelligence of the submersion of Atlantis was conveyed by the survivors to the various nations. He skillfully seizes hold of the tradition to which I have just referred in order to despatch the various legendary heroes, no longer as representatives of the patriarch Noah, but, so to speak, on their own account to the various nations as the survivors of the catastrophe, and as the civilizers and legislators of the countries to which they came. Thus Hoa, or he, is dispatched by him to Assyria. Page 83. He it was who was said to have brought civilization and letters to the ancestors of the Assyrians. He clearly represented an ancient maritime civilized nation. He came from the ocean and was associated with some land and people that had been destroyed by rain and inundations. In like manner, Saturn is sent to Latium. But although the tradition is connected also with Kronos and Poseidon, and although it is said, page 82, that Kronos and Saturn were the same, yet Kronos and Poseidon are not so distributed, for the obvious reason that they stand at the commencement of the civilization of Atlantis. But this affords a measure for testing the theory. If Kronos and Saturn are the same, 
Kronos cannot both be the father of Poseidon, who is gravely regarded by Mr. Donnelly as the actual founder of the kingdom and dynasty of Atlantis, and at the same time the survivor after its subsidence, which happened after the lapse of many generations who brought civilization to Latium. The tradition of Saturn in Latium, I admit, fits in very well with Mr. Donnelly's theory, better even than he seems aware. I should like, however, to know where Mr. Donnelly finds mention of a great Saturnian continent in the Atlantic Ocean. Mr. Donnelly is not lavish of references, and until he gives one in this instance, I can only surmise that it is a free transatlantic translation of the Saturnia Regna of Virgil. It may be, as Mr. Donnelly believes, that Kronos and Saturn are the same, and yet they represent the tradition at different stages and dates, and in Latium, at a later date. Sentioniathan, Epod Eusebius, says that Kronos and Il are the same. And Lenormand says the same of Kronos and the Chaldean Ilu. Here we have the tradition at its earliest stage, and it will be worthwhile giving an extract from Lenormand, as it shows close resemblance with the tradition of Kronos, through Poseidon in Plato's Atlantis. Ilu, the supreme mysterious god whom the Greeks have constantly likened to their Kronos, the part which tradition, as recorded by Barossus, makes him play in the deluge is not perhaps without reference to one of his ideographic names. For the complete group certainly reads Ilu. For example, in the name of Babylon, Babilu, the sign, of which the primitive hieroglyph, which we possess in some monuments, represents a land intersected by canals, is explained by the syllabaries by the root, which in Hebrew signifies to cleanse, and in Assyrian, to inundate. It is thus the god of inundation, the god of the deluge. Vis Opert, Mesopotamia 267, Lenormand, Frag, Barros 288. We have seen Poseidon in Atlantis encircling his hill with alternate zones of sea and land, and in the description of this palace the canals which he constructed are twice referred to. If these are common Diluvian traditions of Kronos and Poseidon, it must follow that in Plato's account of Atlantis we may have Diluvian traditions before the alleged period of its subsidence. Ergo, I should infer a conclusion at which I shall arrive more definitely by another route, that Atlantis was, in the main, only general tradition taking form and embodiment in the mind of Plato. I have still to notice the single fact upon which rests the foundation of chapters 4, 7, that the Iberians, Gauls, and Celtic Irish were Atlantes, viz. that Strabo tells us that the Turditani had written books containing memorials of ancient times, and also poems and laws set in verse, for which they claim an antiquity of 6,000 years. Unfortunately, if we are to argue on Mr. Donnelly's lines, and if the submersion of Atlantis took place 9,000 BC, writings extended back only 6,000 years do not help us at all. It is singular, however, that this figure should have been named by Strabo as dating Anno Mundi, 6000, would be very nearly the correct date in this time. Mr. W. Palmer, in his synchronism, within five years, four months, and seven days, of the Hebrew and 70 with Josephus and the Egyptian Chronicle makes the commencement of the world circa B.C. 5360. 
I may add that so long as Mr. W. Palmer's system remains unrefuted, we may be entitled at any rate to prefer his conclusions to the assertions of the Egyptian priests confuted by the testimony of their own monuments. In Plato's description of Atlantis, prominence is naturally given to the horse, as is appropriate in any mythological legend which commences with Poseidon. Mr. Brown, Poseidon, page 64, and also Mr. Gladstone, Juventus Mundi, are much exercised in this remarkable connection of Poseidon with the horse. I am now only concerned with the fact that it is one of Mr. Donnelly's contentions in proof of the existence of Atlantis that the horse, which upon the evolutionist theory he declares must have been first domesticated in America, could not have passed from America to Europe without the existence of continuous land communication between the two continents. Now let us approach the question from the opposite direction. According to the biblical indications and the tradition that mankind overspread the earth from the plains of Mesopotamia, we should expect to trace the possession and use of the horse in the countries intermediate between the Tigris and Atlantic from east to west. If, however, Atlantis existed and was the original seat of civilization and the point from which it spread to other countries, and if it is part of the statement that the horse existed on the island, then reversely we should expect to trace the progress of its use from west to east. Lenormand, it need scarcely be added, without any advertence to this question, has shown in its Premier's Civilizations, page 300, that the horse not only does not appear in any monument of the old empire, but is equally absent from those of the period called the Middle Empire, which extends from the first Egyptian revival under the 11th dynasty until the invasion of the shepherds. On the contrary, when the monuments recommence after a somewhat lengthened interruption under the 18th dynasty, the horse is seen as an animal in habitual use in Egypt. On the other hand, the philological argument, the only one to which we can have recourse, would seem to show that the horse was well known in the East during the period it was absent from Egypt. The horse was one of the domestic species, which the Aryans possessed in the earliest times, and the use of which was general among their tribes before they were dispersed, some in Europe, the others in Persia and India. Page 318. The evidence which we possess as to the migration of the horse appears to me decisive. There is one other statement which I should like to have discussed, the only remaining one which has a look of a corroboration of Mr. Donnelly's theory i.e., apart from his diluvian traditions which would drift us too far in their current. This chapter, however, has already run to too great length, and the statement will perhaps be more appropriately reserved for consideration in a subsequent chapter, in which I think I shall be able to disclose the secret of Atlantis. Chapter 2 Conjecture as to the Probable Basis of Plato's Atlantis in my last chapter, I reserved an argument of Mr. Donnelly's for further consideration, and as it is based on one of the facts upon which he apparently obtains foothold, one of the islets, or peaks, so to speak, of the submerged Atlantis, I will give it an extract. There was an ancient tradition among the Persians that the Phoenicians migrated from the shores of the Etherean Sea, and this is supposed to mean the Persian Gulf. But there was a very old city of Erythia, in utter ruin at the time of Strabo, which was built in some ancient age long before the founding of Gades, near the site of that town on the Atlantic coast of Spain. May not this town of Erythia have given its name to the adjacent sea? 
and this may have been the starting point of the Phoenicians in their European migrations. It would even appear that there was an island of Erythia, Donnelly's Atlantis, page 310. It will be perceived that this conjecture rests entirely on the statement of Strabo. In the first place, between Strabo's time and the commencement of Phoenician enterprise, B.C. 1200, Lenormand, there was full lapse of time for a city to have been founded, matured, and the monarchical stage having elapsed to have passed through the inevitable stages of aristocracy, democracy, despotism, revolution, and decay, and so in Strabo's time to have been entitled to the description of an ancient city. But Strabo, the sole authority cited, himself says, according to Lenormand, without reference to this question, We must especially bear in mind the information preserved by Strabo, 16766, with reference to the country first occupied by the Canaanites in the Persian Gulf, information which substantially agrees with that which Herodotus, C.F. Justin, 183, had collected from the mouths of the Phoenicians themselves, that the two most ancient sanctuaries of their race were situated in the islands of Tylos and Aradus, two of the existing Barian islands, which reproduced later in the new country of the Phoenicians, in the Mediterranean, the island of Tyre and Aradus. Fragments Cosmogeniques, page 221. Note, Lenormand says this still more explicitly and emphatically, Hist Ankh 2, page 241, as in if anticipation of some such theory as that of Mr. Donnelly's, he says, the Phoenician tradition gathered at Tyre itself by Herodotus, accepted equally by the judicious Trogus Pompeius, the tradition of South Arabia, which Strabo has reported, in fine that which was current in the first centuries of the Christian era, when the original Syro-Chaldaic MS of the book L'Agriculture Nebetienne was written. All three agree in declaring that the Canaanites had primitively dwelt near the two sites, their brethren in origin, upon the shores of the Erythian Sea or Persian Gulf. Further evidence is adduced, but this will perhaps suffice. Even if Strabo had not said it, another line of tradition would show that the Phoenicians sprang from the Erythian Sea, between the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf. But as this will afford evidence in another direction also, it will be convenient to reserve it. The evidence which has now accumulated will justify our reverting to Plato's fragment with a view to discover, if possible, what its real import may be. Plato's Atlantis, so far as I know, has never been compared and confronted with a document, the authenticity of which is recognized by Herene and Lenormand. It will be found in extenso in F. Lenormand, Mem de Hist, Ancien, 2.414, and also in Herene, Hist, Researches. Afric Nations, page 478. These, the voyage of Hanno, which he has posted in the Temple of Kronos. The voyage of Hanno took place circa B.C. 500, and Plato was born circa B.C. 430. This document, which has come down to us in the form of a Greek translation, may reasonably be presumed to have been accessible to Plato during his residence either in Sicily or in Cyrene. It is my contention, one, that this document forms, so to speak, the backbone of the Atlantis. I think that I shall be able to show that Plato does not state any fact respecting Atlantis which has not been taken from this document except, two, for I think the exceptions are sufficiently important to justify a second assertion respecting it. 
unless what Plato drew from the well of general or family tradition. Over the whole, there is the glamour of Plato's style and imagination. Reserving what is preliminary, the account of Atlantis commences thus. The tale, which was of great length, began as follows. I have before remarked in speaking of the allotments of the gods that they distributed the whole earth into portions, and Poseidon, receiving for his lot the island of Atlantis, begat children by a mortal woman and settled them in a part of the island which I will proceed to describe. On the side, towards the sea, and in the center of the whole island, there was a plain which is said to have been the fairest of all plains, and very fertile. Near the plain again, also in the center of the island, at a distance of about fifty stadia, there was a mountain not very high on any side. In this mountain there dwelt one of the earth-born primeval men of that country, whose name was Evanor, and he had a wife named Lucipi, and they had an only daughter who was called Clito. Critias, Professor Jowett's Dialogues of Plato, 2.603. Note, in Appendix A and Appendix B, I give in extenso the description of Atlantis in Plato's Critias, Jowett's translation, and the translation of the Periplus of Hanno and Harin's Hist researches. This allotment of the earth corresponds to the tradition of Pheronius, the father of mankind, Clemens Alex 1.380 to whom the distribution of mankind was attributed. Item Nations Distribute. Hygienus 143, and whom Plato calls the first. Hanno sailed about 500 BC with 60 vessels and 30,000 colonists. Assuming that Atlantis was idealized from the narrative of Hanno, Atlantis would be coextensive with the Carthaginian Empire, including the Canary and Fortunate Islands, Poseidon, son of Kronos, was the tutelary god of the Carthaginians, as witness Hamilcar's elaborate sacrifice to him in the war with Gellin, Juventus Mundi, page 249, and Lenormand terms him the Libyan Poseidon. The occupation of Atlantis by Poseidon and his begetting children by a mortal woman and settling them in a part of the island, may be conjecturally supposed to be the Carthaginian colonization of the islands mentioned in Hanno's narrative and of the mainland beyond the mountains of Atlas. And this seems exactly confirmed when we read in Harin, page 40, The colonists which Hanno carried out consisted, as we are expressly informed, of Libby Phoenicians, and were not chosen from among the citizens of Carthage, but taken from the country's inhabitants. This corresponds sufficiently. It will be noticed that Plato, after the passage about Poseidon, as above, gives a description of a plain, and Hanno's account commences thus. When we had passed the pillars of Hercules on our voyage and had sailed beyond them for two days, we founded the first city, which we named Thymneterium. Below it lay an extensive plain. The passage in Plato about Poseidon refers to the foundation of his first city. As regards the derivation of Thymiaterium, it is difficult to get beyond what old Boltgart wrote. Id est therabulum corsum. Thymiaterium, Lenormand tells us, is the modern Mamura, Mamura. Now the description of Mamura very well corresponds with Plato's descriptions. It is situated upon a hill near the mouth of the river Subo, the waters of which gradually widened in their course fall into the Atlantic as this place and form a harbor for small vessels. 
the fertile pastures, the extensive waters and plantations which we passed on our way hither have already been remarked. We traveled among trees of various kinds, so agreeably arranged that the place had more the appearance of a park than an uncultivated country. We crossed plains which were rich with verdure, and we had a view of lakes which extended many miles in length. Note Lempierre's Tour to Morocco, Pinkerton, 15. McCullough, Geodict, says, Morocco, the ancient Mauritania, has a large extent of comparatively level land. Some of the plains and valleys are of great extent and extraordinary fertility. The soil is now, as in antiquity, proverbial for its fertility, the grass often attaining a height unequaled except in the prairies of America. On the northwestern side of the Atlas Range, the climate is healthy and genial. As only the Greek rendering of the Libyan Phoenician name, and perhaps a fanciful rendering. Bocart's conjecture is that it was so called because situated in a plain, which corresponds to the fact, and Plato describes the plain in which Poseidon, Neptune, settled his children, as the fairest of all plains and very fertile. Note Conjecture Bocart's conjecture is founded on a Hebrew equivalent. But this may hold, as the Phoenician is classed by the philologists as a Shemitic tongue, concerning the extension of the Shemitic race, wide origin of the nations of Western Europe, by J. Pym Yeatman. Plato then proceeds abruptly to inform us that Poseidon next, as he was a god, found no difficulty in making special arrangements for the center island, bringing the streams of water under the earth, which he caused to ascend as springs one of warm water and the other of cold, and making every variety of food to spring up abundantly on the earth. Here Plato a little anticipated Hanno's narrative, apparently for the purpose of introducing the earliest Athenian legend concerning Poseidon, for he is made to perform at Atlantis the same feat with which he is credited at Athens. In his reign, Cecrops, Poseidon called forth with his trident a well on the Acropolis, Smith's Mythological Dictionary. Hanno goes on to say that after passing the plain, they proceeded first to the west, where, in a place thickly covered with trees, they erected a temple to Neptune, Poseidon, and then to the east, where we found a lake lying not far from the sea, which would correspond to the lakes which extended many miles in length. Supra, page 26. If they came upon a country where sea and land, land and lakes, alternated, it might have suggested to Plato's imagination the alternate zones of sea and land. Plato says, and we are further told that Poseidon, when he broke up the ground, made alternate zones of sea and land, larger and smaller, encircling one another. It is next stated in Plato that Poseidon proceeded to beget five pairs of male children, dividing the island of Atlantis into ten portions. The eldest, who was the king, he named Atlas, and from him the whole island and the ocean received the name Atlantic. The name of Atlas is here imported and transferred to the island by Plato from the traditions of Atlas on the mainland. Then follows a long account of the settlement of five pairs of male children, which might be allowed to pass and form the foundation for the theory of Atlantis. If in corresponding sequence Hanno had not added, Having passed the lake about a day's sail, we founded cities. 
Five cities are named, the number corresponding with the five pairs of children of Poseidon. Plato then decants upon the wealth and possessions of Atlas, but before his eloquence has expended itself, he abruptly and incongruously says, as if in recollection of some fact, Moreover, there were a great number of elephants in the island, and there was provision for animals of every kind, both for those that live in lakes and marshes and rivers, and also for those which live in mountains and on plains. In curious juxtaposition, with this I may place Hanno's statement just before his mention of the five cities. We proceeded until we arrived at a lake lying not far from the sea, and filled with abundance of large reeds. Here elephants and a great number of other wild animals were feeding. The coincidence of the mention in both narratives, equally abruptly and unexpectedly, and in almost identical words of elephants and other animals, is noticeable. But there is another coincidence equally remarkable. Plato, page 406, says, The island in which the palace, the palace of Poseidon, was situated, had a diameter of five stadia, the Atlantis island, or continent, thus shrinks to these dimensions. No doubt there is mention of a central island, which implies others, but the above gives us a measure of the localities indicated, which correspond very closely with the islands mentioned in Hanno's exploration. Hanno says, Thence we proceeded towards the east, the course of a day. Here we found in the recess of a certain bay, a small island, containing a circle of five stadia, there we settled a colony and called it CERN. But this small island would appear to have been their headquarters, for it is added, We then came to a lake. This lake had three islands larger than CERN. Whence, returning back, we came again to CERN. If Hanno's narrative lies at the foundation of Plato's fragment of Atlantis, it is natural that what is central in the one should be central in the others, and accordingly that what was the headquarters and the one should figure as the palace of Poseidon in the other. There is a slight resemblance in the way in which the two narratives proceed. Enough of the royal palace crossing the water harbors, which were three in number. Plato. Hanno, after the mention of CERN, which corresponds to the palace, we then came to a lake, which we reached by sailing up a large river. This lake had three islands. Several pages follow in Plato in description of the city, the nature and arrangement of the rest of the country, and the relations of their governments one to another, to which nothing in the short narrative of Hanno corresponds and for which the explanation must be sought elsewhere. Vid Infra, chapter 5, page 77. At the conclusion, however, of the two narratives, there are descriptions which are very similar and leave the impression of one having been suggested to the imagination by the perusal of the other. Hanno says, Towards the last day we approached some large mountains covered with trees, the wood of which was sweet-scented and variegated. Having sailed by these mountains for two days, we came to an immense opening of the sea, on each side of which, towards the continent, was a plain, from which we saw by night fire arising at intervals in all directions, more or less. And further on, when we had landed, we could discover nothing in the daytime except trees, but in the night we saw many fires burning and heard the sound of pipes, cymbals, drums, and confused shouts. We were then afraid, and our diviners ordered us to abandon the island. Plato describes Atlantis thus. The whole country was described as being very lofty and precipitous on the side of the sea, 
but the country immediately about and surrounding the city was a level plain. The surrounding mountains, for their number, size, and beauty, exceeded all that are now to be seen everywhere, having in them woods of various sorts abundant for every kind of work. Also, whatever fragrant things there are in the earth, whether roots or herbage or woods, grew and thrived in that land. After an account of their laws and customs, he describes their sacrifices of bulls to Poseidon, how they burnt the limbs of the bull and took the rest of the victim to the fire, after having made a purification of the column all round, and then poured a libation on the fire. And when darkness came on and the fire about the sacrifice was cool, but not extinct, all of them put on the most beautiful azure robes, and sitting on the ground at night near the embers of the sacrifice on which they had sworn, and extinguishing all the fires about the temple they received and gave judgment. A scene which, if accompanied, as we may imagine with sounds of pipes and cymbals, confused shouts, etc., would bring to the mind much the same scene which affrighted the mariners and diviners of Hanno's fleet. Hanno's short narrative, or at any rate the Greek translation of it which has come down to us, omitting some final words about a savage people, whose bodies were hairy, conjectured by Lenormand and others to be gorillas, that word having been wrongly substituted for the Gorgons or Gorgades of the original MS, may be said to end with a description of a volcanic region. Sailing quickly away thence, we passed a country burning with fires and perfumes, and streams of fire supplied from it fell into the sea. The country was impassable on account of the heat. We sailed quickly thence, being much terrified, and passing on for four days we discovered at night a country full of fire. In the middle was a lofty fire larger than the rest, which seemed to touch the stars. When day came, we discovered it to be a large hill called the Chariot of the Gods. Plato's fragment, and it is a circumstance to be noted that both are fragmentary, terminates with the following passage, which, apart from the argument, may be acceptable. For many generations, as long as the divine nature lasted in them, they were obedient to the laws, and well affectioned towards the gods who were their kinsmen, for they possessed true and in every way great spirits, practicing gentleness and wisdom in the various chances of life and in their intercourse with one another. But when this divine portion began to fade away in them, then they, being unable to bear their fortune, became unseemly. And to him who had an eye to see that they had lost the fairest of their precious gifts, but to those who had no eye to see the true happiness, they still appeared glorious and blessed at the very time when they were filled with unrighteous avarice and power. Zeus, the god of gods who rules with law, and is able to see into such things, perceiving that an honorable race was in a most wretched state, and wanting to inflict punishment on them, that they might be chastened and improved, collected all the gods into his most holy habitation, which being placed in the center of the world sees all that partake of generation. And when he had called them together, he spake as follows. There is nothing more, perhaps, for the reasons suggested, for Hanno's narrative or the Greek translation extends no farther. The catastrophe which was left thus vaguely impending had to be interpreted in the light of the previous statement, page 599, that Atlantis was sunk by an earthquake. Thus one narrative ends somewhat abruptly with the description of a volcano, and the other with a prognostication of a volcanic subsidence. 
If it were worthwhile, I might show a further coincidence in the approximation of the term used by Hanno, the chariot of the gods, with the expression of Plato, collecting all the gods into his most holy habitation. Note, comp also supra page 12, as to the center of the world, remark the striking resemblance to this description in the Chaldean account of the deluge discovered by Mr. George Smith. Call 3.5-7. The gods passed the tempest and sought refuge. They ascended to the heaven of Asu. 17.18. The gods in seats seated in lamentation covered their lips for the coming evil. As I have said, there is nothing more. But if I have succeeded in demonstrating that what is known as the Periplus of Hanno is the foundation of Plato's Atlantis, the discovery, if I may so term it, will at any rate supply the reason why the Critias, Atlantis, was never completed, which has remained a difficulty even to Professor Jowett. The Critias, Atlantis, is a fragment which breaks off in the middle of a sentence. Why the Critias, Atlantis, was never completed whether from accident or advancing age, or from a sense of the artistic difficulty of the design, cannot be determined. Professor Jowett's Introduction to Plato's Dialogues, 2, 595. In speaking of the Atlantis as a fiction, I by no means intend that it was a fabrication intended to deceive his contemporaries. It rather seems to me as if Plato was indulging with them in a common and customary gratification of the imagination and that this is almost acknowledged in the following preliminary conversation. Consider, then, Socrates, if this narrative is suited to the purpose, or whether we should seek for some other instead. Socrates, and what other, Critias, can we find that will be better than this, which is natural and suitable to the festival of the goddess, and has the advantage of being a fact and not a fiction? True, insofar as it was founded on Hanno. How or where shall we find others if we abandon this? There are none to be had. Timaeus 27. Jowett. In other words, I have brought an interesting document from foreign parts, and if you approve, I will interweave it with our traditions. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, Please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.